Welcome to the Nerd Party. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Throwback Paperback. I'm one of your hosts, Charles Sheeland. And I'm the other host, Asia Bonilla. We're back this week starting book three of The Secrets of the Immortal, Nicholas Flamel. Today we're discussing the first half of The Sorceress, Perinelle's book. So we will be talking about chapters 1 through 35. This book has 70 chapters and we've got a lot to cover this week, which should be really fun. Yeah, this is a fun reading because Josh is a lot less mopey than he had been before. But before we get into it, let's just go back to who we are. For anyone who's new to our show, we're a podcast on the Nerd Party Network. We're best friends, and we're reading and rereading young adult literature from our childhood and adolescence and sharing the books with each other. And like Asia said, we're currently reading The Secrets of the Immortal Nicholas Flamel, which I read many years ago when I was in middle school. We started this show with a series that I had read before and Charles read it for the first time, and now we've moved on to the Flamel books, which I'm reading for the first time. And as the newcomer to the series, I get to give a quick plot summary for anyone who needs a refresher of the main plot points of the reading. So, let's jump right into it. Nicholas brings the twins to London, where he wants them to meet Gilgamesh, who can train them in water magic, and then they can catch a ley line home to San Francisco. They, of course, have obstacles to overcome, but finally they make it to Palamedes and Shakespeare's castle hideout, and they prep for the impending battle with the Dark Forces. Dee links up with Bastet and the Archon Cernunnus, I think is how you say but yes. It's with a hard C? I would read it with a hard C. Okay. Cernunnus to fight... (laughs) Who knows? God, these pronunciations. Anyway, with him to fight them in London. And meanwhile, Perinel and AA are on Alcatraz, and they are being attacked by the monsters, the Sphinx, Nereus, and an immortal on the mainland who turns out to be Billy the Kid. Machiavelli has been dispatched to help Billy kill Perinel. So basically, we finish with Perinel trapped on the island, doing pretty well for herself considering that she's all alone. And the rest of the gang is in London in the middle of a battle and no update on Scatty. And that's where we left off, which my impression of the reading was basically that I went into this book just wanting to know what happened to Scatty. And of course, I was disappointed. We did not find out anything about her in the first half. So that was mainly what I was thinking about during the reading. I was just like, when are they going to get to Scatty? I just want to know what happened to her. But that was my main impression. (laughs) Well, we will get Scatty back. I don't know if it's in this book or in the next one, but Scatty's definitely in the next book, I think. But I don't know whether... I feel like it's the second half of this book we find out what happened. Okay. I just want to know. Like, that is something like the cliffhanger. Like, I need to know. Yeah. I'm not sure either, but I'm not going to promise because I actually have no idea. It's it's also because she's one of my... I liked her character, so I miss her in the story. Yeah. No, she's a great character, so I totally get that. Uh, Let me do my impressions really quickly. And I felt like this reading was a lot more action heavy than some of our previous ones. And if you remember, or listeners remember, when we were reading Percy Jackson, I got kind of annoyed by that. I was like, "Ugh, why is there so much plot? I want some background. But in this book, I'm totally loving the plot, which means that I'm just clearly biased towards the books that I like. Uh, Yikes. But... Also, we had been getting a lot of world building, a lot of exposition and details and explanations for a long time. So I think that I was kind of ready to like 
go a little bit full force. But what I did appreciate about the reading was that it was a lot, Josh was a lot less insufferable. Like he became awakened and he became much more enjoyable. Still cocky, still like definitely my lesser of the favorite twins, but I, I enjoyed him more and I thought that for once his and Sophie's skepticism of Flamel was justified because of the other twins. And I'm sure we'll talk about this a little more, but beforehand when they would just get like skeptical and rude, I was like, well, you know, you have no reason to be like this, but it felt like for once, like they were actually justified in their confusion. And that made it a little more of an enjoyable reading. Like it was a little, I was less frustrated with them the whole time. Speaking of which, let's just dive in. So our crew is in London, and they're trying to get to Gilgamesh, who is the master of water, the oldest immortal, and he has no aura, and he's totally crazy. And off the bat, we get those little... At the beginning of each book, we get those diary entries from Flamel. And Flamel says, the real twins this time. And there have been a couple of indicators in the first two books, but I haven't even pointed them out because they've been so subtle about the fact that they've looked for multiple twins. But Flamel says it right here. I was like, well, that's suspicious. That's going to be important. And as he was reading it, or as I was reading the letter or the the diary entry, I got really frustrated with Nicholas because he's like, Perinel and I will die without the elixir. And, you know, we've just got to awaken the twins and train the twins. And I just wanted to, like, say this is a terrible strategy. What you need to do is you need to get the codex back. Because then you push off the back elders returning, the dark elders returning, and you and Perinel can keep living to train the twins. Like, you're only on this time crunch because you can't keep living forever. So I'm like, if it was me, I feel like my strategy would be like, also because you've clearly been able to, like, escape D, so can't you just get the freaking pages back? I- but f- that, like, they talk a lot about fight versus flight, and the idea is they're really not in the position to be on the offensive because for one uh nicholas and Paranel are separated and as we've learned and been told many times Paranel is the stronger of the two and she's currently alone trying to just fight for her life and nicholas is and they're slowly losing power as and the more they use the powers they're faster they're gonna die so at this point i do think that as unfortunate as as it is i think the twins kind of are their last hope for them mm-hmm. kind of winning. I guess just for, go ahead. Which we can we can talk about it a little bit later when we get to the battle cuz I have a little bit to say um especially getting into the twins and how when they decide not to run. So we can wait till we get to okay. then because I have a lot to say there. Also, it's something that comes up like Paranel, they talk about it during the scrying and Shakespeare talks about it too like it's just time to fight. I guess for me it's just like I think that now that the twins are like have Sophie has some power, I'm like which I, I will to... talk about. I will talk about later because okay. I don't think that they're prepared to fight. I which guess is proven in the reading, but sure, fine. Well, we'll wait. But they're on the run in London, and I really liked when Nicholas is like, "We're being followed." Josh, don't look because we have to remind Josh of these things because the last time that he got followed, he was like, "I just, yep. I just did like a very dramatic look." But this is a podcast, so you can't see that. But Josh, last time he got told he was followed, he just turned around. Yeah, and then they are being followed by, I don't know why you put the name of them in here, because you know I'm not going to pronounce it. Genii Kukulati? That, 
they're they're flesh eaters, which is when I just referenced that this is definitely, as we've had many conversations about outside of just on the recordings, about how I feel that this series is a little bit more horror-esque, especially compared to Percy Jackson. And it's not even that it's scary to read. It's just the idea of, when I talk about for it being made into a TV show, like, this would be more horry. Like, there's no flesh eaters in Percy Jackson. Like, I don't know. This just seems a lot scarier. Um, isn't Polyphemus a flesh eater? Doesn't he talk about eating Grover the whole time? Oh, no. oh, oh, am I right? No, am no, I right? no, he's not a flesh right. eater. I read the books. The, the sheep. Remember the sheep or flesh eaters? That was gross, know. too. But these are, it's, it's. It's how Michael Scott is. It's his descriptions of things. I mean, you said that this book is for it's definitely older, for an older audience, which make I mean, it's clear because it's a little bit more. It's just more descriptive. Like I can see this in a film adaptation. It would be more gory than Percy Jackson would be. I would assume. I would agree with that. Because even like Percy, just talking about Percy Jackson, like where we had the flesh eating sheep or whatever. Remember how they talked about the goat or whatever the guy fed to them, the goat, they said all that was left was bones. There was no blood, nothing. Like, there's no gore. Whereas I feel like flesh eaters in this story, there would be gore. It would be I gross. Mean, we haven't gotten any gore, but I do I do understand that it's, def- it's definitely for an older audience, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And then we get the call for Dean Machiavelli with the Dark Elders. So Dee is being sent to London to kill Nicholas and take the twins. And Machiavelli is heading to Alcatraz to kill Paranel and release the monster army on San Francisco, which that sounded super duper scary. Again, horror movie. And we also find out that Dee's punishment, if he fails, will be awful. And basically, they will age him up to being on the brink of death, and they'll then make remake him immortal so that he'll constantly be living in that super-duper aged state. So that was just terrible. Like, honestly, punishment worse than death. Oh, yeah. The Dark Elders are ruthless. Also, during that call, and this is because I know who Dee's master is, but there was a little bit of a hint as to who Dee's master is. Did you pick up on it? Should I share a little bit or no? So, I'm not going to lie. We talked about this a little bit earlier, and I do not think that this was a hint, but the hint, which when we talked about it, I said that they describe Dee's master, Dark Elder, as having a voice that sounded like a male and a female, like you couldn't really tell, and almost as if two people were talking at the same time. Which Charles said. And I'm saying that's a hint. I'm not going to say any more than that. If you have read the books or you figured out who Dee's master is, why don't you reach out to us, either Asia or me or the nerd party, you know, as we give that little spiel at the end of like who Dee's master is um, or how to contact us. Reach out to us. I will reach out back and confirm yes or no. But we are not going to spoil it on the podcast. But for those of you who have read and for me, because I I knew I figured out Dee's Masters before it was revealed the first time I read it, but I definitely didn't figure it out as early as this. But now that I know who Dee's Master is, I was like, oh, that's a really good hint. So I'm just going to leave it at that. Okay, well, then I think that you're projecting because I think that it's not a good enough hint that if you've never read it before, which if you're saying you figured it out earlier on, I think we're going to need more than just it sounds like a male and a female. But... 
that's just me. But also how we talked about it, I don't I I'm not gonna know who it is. I can already I'm putting it down right here on the recording. I am not gonna be able to guess. I mean that's perfectly fine, but I, I think that knowing the answer and reading the book for the first like rereading it, like there is definitely enough material so far in the book to figure out who's D Masters it who D's master is. There's already enough material to figure it out, but it I definitely didn't get it as a teenager the first time. But we'll leave it at that because we're not going to spoil something as big as that. But if you do know or you want to talk about it, you can reach out to us directly and we can talk about it off pod. And I just want to mention that that call with Dee and Machiavelli, Dee is so savage and rude to Machiavelli because after the call, Machiavelli is like, they could kill us. They're pretty mad. And Dee's like, well, of course they could kill you. You're disposable. And then Machiavelli gets back on the call and he's like, I only failed because I had to wait for D. And then Machiavelli gets his way and like all the other elders are like laughing at these masters. And it, it was really funny because Machiavelli got his revenge. But either way, our two main villains are not getting along at all. Yeah, they have a nice little banter going on. <laughs> But anyway, we should probably talk about the conversation Nicholas has with the twins about the witch's memories. So when they were talking about this, I was writing down because their explanation didn't really make sense sense to me because I don't understand. They said that the witch, they're suspecting that the witch of Endor might have given Sophie all of her memories so she could kind of get like a new younger body, which to me that didn't make it didn't fully make sense because her consciousness, like her actual mental being, wouldn't be in Sophie. It would just be her memories. So to me, that wouldn't be a way of taking over someone's body. Like to me, it was only helpful. Yeah, I didn't really buy that either, that the Witch of Endor giving Sophie her memories was a way to like pass on her being, especially because Sophie isn't even immortal. Like she could become immortal eventually, but there's like... The witch is immortal, and because she's a first-generation, like, elder, she's powerful. Like, she's powerful in a way that Sophie could never be, because Sophie's just a human. Like, it doesn't, it didn't really, I mean, maybe we'll get a little more explanation. But what I did think about in this reading was that it's really clever of Scott to give Sophie the memories, because Sophie is there for exposition in a way that's not force-fed. Because basically, anytime we get a new character or a new creature or something like that, Sophie can draw on the memories of the witch to give us exposition, but it doesn't feel as heavy handed because it's more like Sophie's sorting through her memories or like Sophie's drawing on the things that the witch has given her. So I thought that was really, I only realized it again, reading it for the second time as an adult, like that was really clever for world building and exposition that we get that Sophie who otherwise would be a character who needs exposition ends up being our source of exposition. Yeah, that's that's how I see it as well. And that's why when they talked about that, I was just like, that to me doesn't make sense. Because I also like, I was seeing it as a tool that Scott used to create expedition and naturally have it naturally flow in the book. But yeah, so that but that also leads me to another question, which Palamedes, when talking to Josh Nicholas, the twins, he says that the former guardians of the Codex went into hiding. And why didn't the Flamels do that? And we also find out that, like we said about how Flamel not telling Sophie and Josh 
um, about the previous twins, like that he's worked with other special twins and they directly ask him, you know, what happened to those twins? And he just doesn't answer. Like he is starting to act a little suspicious in that if he's trying to get them to trust him, this is only going to make them trust him less. Yeah. And the answer to both is kind of, the answer to both your questions is kind of the same. It's basically that Nicholas and Paranel decided they were going to find the twins of legend. So that's why they didn't go into hiding because they were living and looking for a set of silver and gold twins to become the twins of legend. So I totally agree. Like I said, I think that their suspicion is justified that Nick and Perry didn't tell them more. And I think we'll get to it. I mean, we got kind of the same thing with like Dee's son having a, I mean, Shakespeare's son having like a close to gold aura and then being awakened. But I do think we'll get some more concrete about some of the previous twins. Basically, they looked like they were gold or silver, but they weren't pure like gold and silver. The way like Scatty's like your guys' auras are perfect. Like mm-hmm. Paranel and Nicholas were trying again. We'll get more into this, I think, later on. But they were trying to find the twins of legend and because those people weren't the twins of legend, like they clearly were not as special. They ended up dying or going crazy through the awakening process. And Nick and Paranel just kept trying again and again. And I want to know what you think. Do you think Palamides is right that they caused innocent deaths by staying in the world? I mean, it kind of ties into what Shakespeare was saying about fighting and Paranel says about fighting. Like, and what I've been saying about like, go back to D, get the codex back. Or, like, even if previously they'd stood up to D and, like, maybe defeated him 300 years ago rather than just running, like, I think fewer people would be dead. And right now, like, if if they'd fought him in Paris rather than running away after the gargoyles, like, he wouldn't be destroying London right now. I want to know what you think. So, for Palamedes' opinion on Flamel and Flamel's, and if they've been causing innocent deaths, for me, I wasn't really making any judgments since we're not getting the whole story. So far, we've only heard what Palamedes has had to say uh, because Nicholas hasn't said anything. And so, so far, what we know about the Flamel's, they seem to be good people. So, I don't want to make any quick judgments. Obviously, if what Palamides is saying and like you're just talking about how if they've been looking for the twins and awakening twins that don't have pure auras, which also I would question, you know, did they know that and they just tried anyway or did they really think that their auras were pure silver and gold and they tried and it didn't work? And how many times did that happen? Like all of those things. I I need more answers before I'd be able to make a hard judgment like that upon them and so for that I also as far as the fighting goes which we'll talk a little bit more about this when we get to the battle um for right now I like I said I disagree I don't think that they have the manpower or the power basically to fight D in this moment but maybe when Nicholas and Paranel were on their own you know throughout their 600 years of life they could have maybe tried to fight D but I think what I think of it as, though, it's not about just defeating D. It's about defeating the Dark Elders. And D is just one of their many agents. They use him a lot. But I feel like if they ultimately would have maybe fought D and defeated him, like, wouldn't they have just gotten a different human eye, immortal human eye to help them? Probably. Yeah. So that's why I feel like almost like logically, like, 
that plan to me doesn't seem like, because it seems like the ultimate plan for them is they're looking for the twins because these twins of prophecy are the only way that like they can actually save the world from the dark elders because they're ultimately not powerful enough. They need the powers of these twins. So it makes sense why they were searching for them and they're serving this ultimate purpose. And I think it kind of like, that could also go back to like the idea of like, um, the means justifying the ends and this Mm -hmm. idea of let's say they did go through all these twins and they're trying to find this solution and they did kill innocent people or make them go crazy. But if they get the right outcome and ultimately, you know, save the world from the dark elders coming back, Mm -hmm. maybe it might've been worth it. But like, so for me, I just, I, to me, because Nicholas didn't say anything, I do think it now makes him more justifiably suspicious. I'd also like to know what Perinel had to say, because since we're also only now getting, we're only hearing from Nicholas, we're never really getting Perinel's perspective since she's not there. Because, mm-hmm. like, I wonder if she would be more willing to answer, whereas Nicholas right now is more deflective of any questions. Yeah. I, I think that you also can't blame them for causing violence that they didn't cause. Like, I think that Palamedes is wrong. Like, I get that he, what yeah. he's saying that, you know, they could have hid. But also, I think that it's a little unfair because it's not like they were killing people. Like, it was entirely on D. Well, also, yeah, that too. Like, okay, they're running around, but like, D's the one killing. And like, also, like, D is the one who killed Shakespeare's son. Like, that is terrible, which... And we know Machiavelli doesn't, he doesn't, when he wants things, he doesn't go and destroy entire cities, entire countries. And to me, that just shows, I mean, we talk a little bit more about D soon, like about, he's just a little bit more reckless about his, like Machiavelli is so much more calculating. He's crazy. But anyway, enough about that. We'll get a little bit more into it um, near the end. But let's pop back over to California with Paranel. And all I wrote in all caps was, how could there possibly be any more bugs in the story? Like, it's very, very disgusting. And I know I would have never read this as a kid. Like, when I was reading, I wanted to put the book down. I mean, you hate bugs, so I understand. It's that simple. And it's gross. Paranel describes it as being multiple millions of flies. That's vile. Disgusting. But let's just move on from that and talk about Paranel's brain because she is so smart in the way she drives the flies away. I was so impressed that she was like, how can I get rid of the, all the flies at once? I'll just make a poop smell for them to fall. <laughs> like she's a boss and Gross. then we don't have to worry about the bugs anymore. And for all my world builders out there, we get some confirmation. Paranel's aura is odorless, which is pretty cool because it's rare and also means she doesn't leave that kind of smell. Like anytime we smell, anytime anyone smells mint, we're, mint, we're like Nicholas or Sulfur. We're like, it's D. Like Paranel, she's like a spy. She's covert. No. That, oh, can I ask a question? Yeah. Because you said how we find it that her aura is orderless. Is that because doesn't Machiavelli like ask Billy if he smelled anything or something? He does ask that, but Paranel says it during the fly section. She talks about how she's like her aura is odorless. She says it specifically. Wow, I missed that. But I mean, I'm looking for that sort of stuff because I (laughs) couldn't remember what her aura smelled like to begin with. And since we're here, let's do Billy. Billy's aura is red and it smells like cayenne pepper, so spicy. And Palamedes is olive and his smells like cloves. And then Shakespeare's is yellow and smells like lemon. 
And I, you know, you know me, I'm just so happy to get these details. We've got like a bunch of spices, got, you know, basically cooking in this <laughs> chapter. Oh my gosh. It, it makes me really happy to get the details. Yeah, but and then let's actually quickly do all of Billy the Kid, his plot so far, because we only got a few chapters with him. But basically, he's an American outlaw and he got immortality when he was 22. So he is significantly younger than the other immortal humans we've met. And he has been tasked to help Machiavelli kill Paranel and let loose the monsters on San Francisco. Did you grow up knowing about Billy the Kid? Because you're from California. So when I read it, I was like, Billy the Kid, I know that's something, but I didn't bother looking it up because I knew you would be able to enlighten me. But the name sounded familiar, but I'm not really sure what it is. I mean, I didn't do a lot of recon on this one, but uh, I did not grow up in California. But Billy the Kid was like a pretty famous American outlaw in the American Southwest, I believe. I could be completely wrong. And maybe I'll look it up for the next episode so we can talk about him a little more because Billy also will grow into like a bigger character for sure. We're just getting him introduced right now, but he's a really fun character and I love that he gets coupled up with Machiavelli. I forgot that plot line. So it's really fun that we're going to get them together. And like I said, we will definitely get more of Billy down the line and we should definitely keep an eye on the fact that he got his immortality really young. Machiavelli is like, I wonder what he did to get it. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. pretty good indicator that we should keep an eye on that too. Yeah. So then back in the UK, we meet Shakespeare, who is also an immortal, and he has bad blood with Nicholas. And he smells very, very bad. I know. And then Josh was like, just Josh, first thing he says to him is like, you need a bath. Like Josh is still rude and has no impulse control. Which... Yes, Shakespeare doesn't bathe, which Charles put this in the outline for me to say, which he doesn't bathe because it was fitting and common for his time period, which my response to that is, but we're not in his time period anymore, so he needs to take a shower or a bath. That's disgusting, and for once in the entire story, I'm with Josh, and I would have said something too, um, because... Especially when he starts touching them. You're like, oh no, stop, stop, stop. It's, as soon as they entered personal space oh no get get away from me absolutely not but uh, that's also that's a personal thing for me because one of my pet peeves is body odor so i would not pet peeves that i would not be able to handle that so no i would not be forgiving him for that style of his time period i'm not forgiving him i'm just explaining well it's unacceptable it's unacceptable i would agree Anyway, but the bad blood between Shakespeare and Nicholas gets forgiven pretty quickly because Shakespeare helps Nicholas FaceTime with Paranel. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll get to the FaceTime session a little more in a second. But we get some, like, random character developments, and they're kind of nice. They flash out a couple of our characters. Like, we start with Machiavelli, who loved his wife so much, and then he kept his marriage vows to her after she died for, like, a couple hundred years. Yeah, and I wrote down that Machiavelli, you know, not wanting to leave behind his wife and children when he found out when his elder made him immortal, he, like, didn't realize that was part of the equation, and he, you know, watched from afar them grow old, and after his wife died, he vowed to never remarry, to not betray his wife. That All of that, like, really, to me, humanizes him and kind of shows how he is a better person than D, who kind of cares for no one but himself. 
And we find out that Machiavelli's main goal is to discover the truth about the Dark Elders, whereas, you know, obviously Dee is, like, with the Dark Elders, wants them to come back and return Earth to this paradise that he considers. So, like, I definitely feel that Machiavelli at this point is one of, is a better evil character. Like, he his goals, what he's going for is he just wants to know the truth. And so it's making him definitely, like, a higher character, in my opinion. Told you, he's the best, and it's just going get, to keep getting better. But, yeah, and then we have D with his selfish plan to lure the twins back to Mars. You know, it's all part of D's individual plan, but it's very clever of him for sure. And then, weird moment from Shakespeare. You mean when Shakespeare says that D is a liar, but then he also talks about how he believes his lies, and... Shakespeare says that he also thinks that the Dark Elders should come back because not all of them eat flesh. Some just consume emotions and memories. And he thinks that that's a small price to pay to live in a world without famine or disease, like a paradise. And he says, especially since the human eye are the main ones destroying the earth, which I just thought was like a very interesting perspective because it is one thing to say, okay, humans are like, we all know climate change and stuff. We're ruining the earth. But to say that like we have to pay with our emotions and memories, like that doesn't really sound like a great process. Yeah. Also like we wouldn't spread as many famine and diseases if we showered. (laughs) But yeah, for me, it made no sense that he, you know, he's fight. He's like, I'm fully behind fighting against D, but then he's also like pro elder return. But anti-D, I'm like, those two don't work because D is number one Dark Elder agent. I think for, I think his hatred for D is more personal because obviously D murdered his son. So I think he just hates D as a person, but he agrees with some of the ideas D believes in because like those are separate things. I obviously like don't agree with what Shakespeare believes in either, but I think that's where it like separates. Like I don't really think he cares what D believes in. He's just like, I hate him because... He basically, and this is when we find out, D tried to awaken Shakespeare's son because Shakespeare had twins, a son and a daughter. But the son, the son was like 11, they said. Like, he was a kid. And he tried to awaken him, which ultimately killed him. And we, this story, because uh, Nicholas didn't know this, and Shakespeare explains, and this is what makes Nicholas forgive Shakespeare because Shakespeare almost killed Paranel. So it like makes him forgive like why he made the mistake of running with D when D ultimately betrayed him anyway. And that's when Shakespeare sets up the FaceTime call basically between Nick and Perry. Yeah. And I want to mention that when we get the chapter where Paranel experiences the FaceTime or the scrying, I should say, it's scrying, it's not FaceTime. But <laughs> the way she talks about Nicholas is kind of beautiful and haunting. Like, their, her passion for him is so strong. Like, they've been in love for 600 years, and you can tell, like, the way she talks about, like, the way he just completes her and is just really sweet. I really liked that. Yeah. I I I look forward to when we'll get more scenes, like, with Nicholas and Paranel together since they've been separated pretty much the whole, the whole time. But then their call gets interrupted and Nick ends up sending Paranel his, Josh, and Sophie's auras. And Paranel screams, saying that Nicholas just killed her. And I was just like, what just happened? I was so confused. Yeah, I can see why. I obviously knew what she meant. But we get that explanation in a couple chapters. Do you want to yeah. explain it? 
Yeah, I was I was glad that we got the explanation right away because I was just like, oh my god, why did she say that? Like, what a terrible thing to like the it's last you thing they hear. Forgot the world building. Anyway, so we find out the reason why she said that is because by strengthening Paranel's aura, Nicholas gave up her location to the Sphinx because it was a flare of orc power. So, which I was like, that's so sad because he was just trying to help. And like, she's like, you killed me. But it works out because they did actually help Paranel because they made her extremely stronger. And she they made her so strong, she was able to throw a literal snowstorm at the Sphinx that like burned her, ended up trapping her, and she basically defeated the Sphinx for now. But Nicholas won't know that because she just hung up on him. But they do kind of tie it up because later he says, or when they go back to Nick and the twins, one of them's like, oh my God, why did she scream? Is she okay? And Nicholas is like, I know that she's okay because I know that I would like feel in my like aura or body heart if she was like dead. So he knows that she's okay. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, when Nick was being impulsive, like he knew there was a Sphinx there. So he should have known better than to charge her aura, but he was just being emotional and it's, you know, not a great thing because it reveals her location in Alcatraz and it reveals his location in London. And it ends up being a little bit of a disaster. And Paranel's fine because she's a boss. But, you know, we talk about this a lot, that being emotional will make smart people do stupid things. And, again, just proof of, like, Paranel's and Nick's connection that he's so overcome by his love and his, like, fear for her. Which, like, makes sense. I mean, they've been together for 600 years like i'm sorry but i don't care if i'm putting myself in danger i don't care if i'm putting you in danger i'm gonna do anything i can to help exactly and so he My, forgets he yeah he forgets and it's justifiable so it makes sense yeah again because they're still human they're still human yeah <laughs> he still makes a lot of mistakes like you know supercharging the auras of regular children and watching them die anyway okay <laughs> but that's a nice wrap up to the Paranel story because like we said, she obliterates the Sphinx and gets away for now. And also because we did finish the reading with a very big cliff anger of, oh my God, Ner- Nereus. Nereus. Nereus is capturing her. He's showed up, which I also like, I'm curious to like care about that. The fact that like he's able to walk on land and stuff was Again, kind of horror movie-ish. He's kind of like but, Campe, Campe in Percy Jackson, who had like eight tail. Like she had like an octopus body too, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. He had like, well, she was like the body of like a dragon. Like I imagine like dragon legs, oh. but then I, I don't really remember exactly. Yeah, we blocked that out because that was scary. Th- that I, <laughs> also, it was too hard for me to actually imagine that. But no, he has like I'm the bottom curious. half of an octopus though. Yeah, because they talk about him because he's with the like the what are they called the the nereids the nereids and like how they have to stay in the water obviously but he can come up and he's coming to get Paranel like just terrible yeah and I should mention right now like Billy the kid right after the big auric explosion he calls Machiavelli he's like I can't kill her myself I'm gonna need all the help I can get I thought I could do it but I can't yeah I mean he's it's good because I mean they do talk about it like they need to make sure that they're not underestimating her like she's probably what, like the most powerful sorceress in the world? Yes. Also, I love what Paranel, every time we get a chapter from Paranel, she's like, I'm sure I've been in worse situations, but I can't remember what they are. <laughs> like every single time she's like, 
I have an elder spider who's wrapped up in a cocoon. I'm trying to protect her. I'm stranded on an island. There's a sphinx and a bunch of monsters. And there's a dark elder in the water. But I'm sure and I've been in a worse situation. Like, positive thinking. She's got to keep the good vibes flowing so she doesn't give up on herself. Truly. And then she has this really interesting conversation with the Morgan sisters who, like, are in her body. And then she lets them out, which I thought was a bad idea. What did you think, Asia? I definitely thought it was a bad idea. I don't understand. I feel like, and this is where, like, she's kind of probably got nothing to lose. She needs all the help she can get. So she's probably, like, trying to trust these two, the two sisters of the Morgan that have been trapped inside her body. But also we just, I, I am looking forward to reading more about that because I feel like we didn't really get a conclusion. But I, I don't know if it was the best idea. I mean, I think she probably thinks she can defeat them because she's already been able to, like, capture them once. And she knows the spears are, like, actually going to kill them. Like, it didn't kill Ariapinop, but it definitely weakened her. But, like, it was going to kill the crow goddess. Mm -hmm. So I think Paranel probably knows she's like, if it comes to it, she can probably defeat them. So she's like, maybe I can get the help, but I definitely think it was a bad idea. Mm -hmm. Let's move over to London because we've got a big battle coming up. And my turn to call out some character building. We find out that Dee's father told him that his desire for knowledge was insatiable. So he described he used this metaphor that he said D was going to become like a knife that is sharpened so often it becomes blunt. And he specifically called him a flawed tool, which we kind of learned that he's kind of right because D does have this insatiable like need to like learn more and become more powerful. And we find out that Bastet and the dark elders know this, like know this memory. Yeah. And I have some world building to keep track of. Mars is Bastet's baby brother, and he's Endor's husband. And Endor put the curse on him because she loves him and she wants to protect him from harm, which I get because she, Mars, is very angry and he rages all the time and he basically picks a fight all the time. So I understand why she wanted to keep him trapped so that he wouldn't be in a vulnerable situation. For me, that explanation was just kind of odd and maybe you know i mean now it's like now i am questioning endor or dora's motivations Mm -hmm. just because okay your husband you know you care about him and he's doing all these reckless things and making all these enemies why like for me like if you really loved him like you should have i don't know to me if you really love someone like holding somebody against their will and trapping them is like not a form of love like that's evil to me. So to me, like, you should have just killed him or something or let what happened happen. Like, I don't know. To me, that's not a form of love. So that to me makes me question, like, her integrity. Because, like, to me, like, I think Dee even makes a comment of, like, who would put you in this, like, living hell? Like, this idea of he's never going to die, but he's not living. I mean, it. it's definitely evil, and I do think a lot of it has to do with the uh, fact— An analogy I can give is people who—so if, like, like for me, if my husband, if I was married and my husband was in an accident and he was in a coma, or and he was brain dead, and they're either you unplug him or you keep them on the, like, care, like, making the machines breathe for him, people who keep people who are brain dead, no longer there, no chance of recovery, on 
the tubes and the machines, that is evil to me because the fact is they're not alive and that's selfish to me. If that makes sense, like, and that to me is not good. That's bad because you're being, you are therefore only acting in your own self-interest and you're not actually, you don't actually care about the other person. It's very controlling. And yeah, I mean, I feel you with that one, with the analogy. I think that it's a, but to me, this is like the same thing because if he was actually evil and bad, like then you should kill him or separate yourself from him and let what happens happen to him. Like, holding even if he's doing bad things nobody deserves that like i don't know but he he should just die i i think one part of it is the fact that elders have been around for so freaking long they have no perception of like true feelings because and i think that like also just this like the few interactions we've had with mars like his desperation to be freed like i cannot imagine doing that to somebody i don't care what he did that's terrible. I think it also has to do with a lot with the fact that she and him were big defenders of humans. They were some of the elders who were really pro-human. And then he turned on the humans and sided with the dark elders. And Then you kill him. You don't. But she couldn't do it because she loves him. I'm not saying it's right. Then she needs to hire somebody else to she's kill him. She's the she only one who can. Him. She's so powerful. Then she has to kill him. So then that means she's weak. Because to me, that okay, is well, like. I, okay. I'm just going to nip this in the bud. Because Mars will be freed and we will get some more details on their relationship and their stuff. Okay. All I know is that that definitely like I don't like that. I it definitely makes me question. And I mean, it's definitely like an like if they're supposed to still be in love or so like be a couple, which I don't think like that's kind of the vibe they're going for. It's definitely like an abusive relationship where one person has very strong parameters of what the other person can do. That's, I think that's a better... Yes, that is. It's straight yeah. up abuse. It's cruel and unusual punishment. If he if he really betrayed you, betrayed the humans, you killed him. That's it. It's over. Execution. Done. Sure. I would agree with that. But I do also understand that, like, her, like, selfish love... I mean, it's selfish. That's what I'm saying. It's her selfish love that, and wanting to keep him... And selfish is bad. Yes. You shouldn't, like, especially something like that. Yes. Yeah. No, I agree. We will get some resolution. I think it's at the end of this book, but it might be at the end of the next book. But we will get some resolution on Mars and Dora. Okay, I promise. Okay. I also just last thing before we go. I just I also wonder because like if she's doing that, like does she go visit him or she just traps him there and he's just stuck there and no one ever goes to see him? Well, again, because of like they've been allowing for so long, their time like time is kind of like an abstract concept to them because she's been around for what 10,000 years obviously not because like I said to me like the idea of the desperation like I said we've only had a couple scenes with him the desperation he showed like he is miserable he is aware of how like yes he is miserable he is aware of how terrible his situation is I mean it's awful it's definitely awful but yeah yeah we'll we'll get more into it um also because I can't exactly remember all the things like the reason Dora puts him in. Like, I think that once we have that, it'll be a little more clear, but either way, we will get Mars back to an extent as a character. And then we meet the Archon Kerninus, who is the Archons are the 12 Archon Archons were a power that ruled the earth before the elders. But like, he's not that impressive. If you ask me, like, he's definitely scary, and he's, like, he definitely could kill you, and, like, I think that in a one-on-one melee fight, he could destroy you, but I think that D is totally right, that D is able to defeat him, and I really liked that, that 
there was like this idea that the Archon was going to be unstoppable, but Dee's like, mm, I think I got this. Well, yeah, because Dee talks about that it doesn't really seem like he necessarily has like magical powers. It almost seems like it's mainly just like brute force. Like, mm-hmm. cause I think at the beginning, like he makes a comment as if like that he can read Dee's mind, mm-hmm. but then Dee's like, well, the only things he told me, he could have gotten that information from somewhere else. Like, so at first, the first time he says it, it might sound like he's reading my mind, but he probably just already had that information prepared. So I do think that was very interesting. But the whole battle in London, I was just thinking, like, why aren't Sophie and Josh leaving with Flamel? Like, my first thought, when they said that there's this giant Archon that they don't know, there's all the, like, there's all these other things that are, it's not just D coming to them. They've got a whole army coming against them. Like, they need to get out of there. And this is when we're going back to the fight versus flight thing, because Paranel did tell them that they should stand and fight, but she didn't know that an Archon with, um... What is the wolf pack the thing hunt. called again? The hunt. She didn't know they were coming. So she thought. It was just D and then maybe an elder. It, yeah. And maybe an elder. They have a whole army. Like they're not prepared for this. This is where I feel that Sophie and Josh are overestimating how powerful they are. Because they've both been awakened now and they have powers. But they are not in control of them. Sophie barely knows how to use air and fire. And Josh doesn't know how to use anything. And. So, like, they've just, like, they're just on the cusp of learning things. And it's even proven when Sophie tries to light them out on fire and fails the first time. Like, she can't even do it because they don't know what they're doing. Like, that's where I'm, like, they're they're overestimating themselves and, like, building them. Like, they're getting a little bit too arrogant, in my opinion. Uh, Definitely. This reading, that's, like, very clear. So, like, that was my main thing of why I was, like, they should just, in this specific circumstance, like, they are not prepared for this. They need to leave. I would agree with that. I think that you're absolutely right that this battle, they are not prepared for. I think that my desire that I had at the very beginning when Flamel is like, we're running away. I'm like, if there's a way that you could combat D, like you, Scatty, the twins, or you, Palamedes, Shakespeare and the twins, if you four or five could like attack D get the page of the codex back so that you don't have to die. But I just, I agree with you that like this battle situation is not advantageous. Like they're just literally, they're going to lose people or they're going to get hurt, badly injured, or one of them's going to die. Like it just, this is not, this is not the time to fight there. Like so they were just to me getting the twins. Like they were getting a little bit cocky. I feel like in this section, like when they're like, we need to stay and fight. We want to stay and fight. And I was like, now is not the time like to be throwing a tantrum over here. But anyway, I did have a question. The Archon, I'm not going to say his name, he recognized the twins and said they'd met before. Why did he, what did that mean? I think he means the twins of legend. I think he means the original gold and silver, the ones who brought down oh, Donutalis. Okay. I think that was them, but I think that's what he means. And yeah, I, I really don't want you to think I disagree with you about like this battle makes no sense. Like when Shakespeare's like, I'm going to stay and hold them off. I was like, why? There's no point. Yeah, that makes no that sense. That doesn't make any sense. Like yeah. you said, there's a back exit. Like everyone should escape now. As soon as they said that there was a back exit, I was like, why are we not all going through the tunnel right this instant? Why are, why are we like, we're going to fight? What are you talking about? Uh, also, it's like avoidable. It's just avoidable. Exactly. Like, fight on your own terms. But anyway, it doesn't Nick, uh, Josh say that at one point. He's like, you should fight on your own terms. I'm like, these are not your own terms. Josh also, because he does talk about that because he knows since he has the 
information from Mars, he does. I think he says, like, in this specific instance, they should not fight. But he's, like, that's where I feel like the arrogance is coming in, especially when he picks up Clarant, the sword. I think all of that, it's, like, that desire for power, that desire to, like, fight somebody. Like, he's being drawn into it, even though he knows it's not the smartest decision. Absolutely. And I just wanted to mention, because we're still on this, I forgot, or I did not remember when I read the book, the animosity with Shakespeare and Palamedes and Nick. Like, Palamedes hates Nicholas, and Shakespeare and Nicholas, like, fight, but they make up. But I... When I read this book the first time, I clearly was not nuanced enough because I was like, oh, they went to London. They lived in the castle and then there was a big battle. But and I remember those two immortal humans coming. But I did not remember that there was like hatred. And Palamedes, like <laughs> every chance he gets, he's like, by the way, I hate Nicholas. Yeah. I f- did not recall the infighting. And I'm very glad we got it because it's a lot of like nuance, a lot of depth to the characters. They're not all just buddy buddy. Whereas like when Nicholas goes up to Scotty the first time, they're like, yeah, we're best friends. We've been best friends for a couple hundred years. Yeah. And so then as the fighting gets to the climax, we learn that D actually wants to kill the Archon to gain his memories and knowledge, which, you know, goes back to this insatiable desire for knowledge and power. A flawed which- tool. Which this is kind of like how Josh, he got a taste of that as he's been using Clarant. And for me, this is when I'm just like, I feel like Josh is kind of starting to seem like a new D in some ways. Because he does also kind of seem to have that, a similar desire for more knowledge and power. Which is just terrible because, you know, he's being made out like he could possibly be a villain. But... I also wrote down that I thought it was interesting that Josh noted that he saw the same no, uh, the same thoughts in Flamel and Dee's heads, like when he touched them, and it were f- the thoughts were fear, loss, and anger. But in Dee, he also saw the hunger for knowledge and power, and the image of him killing the Archon. Yeah, I think that that's really astute to notice. And again, I'm not going to spoil anything, but we, you know, watching Josh is like watching the twins is important. And speaking of which, I think we should backtrack and just finish the episode talking about the twins, because like I said, they're justified in their frustration with Nicholas when they find out about the other twins and like they find out that they only got their jobs because they're twins and Nick and Perry figure that out. So their concerns are completely legitimate. Which I agree with you on that. I think that now they are kind of having real reasons to question them and be a little skeptical. But now is not the time to stand against Nick while they're literally in a battle or a battle that they didn't need to be because all of a sudden they're like, we need to take a stand against Nicholas and we need to stand here and fight because we want answers. And I'm like, how is this going to get you answers if you get killed or Nicholas gets killed? Then you'll never know what happened. Like, I just, I didn't understand their thought process, which is when I feel like, I feel like they're getting cocky, a little bit arrogant. And also just like, I totally understand if you want answers, but like you also have to be smart about it. And, you know, you need to live to see another day to get those answers. Also, Josh is like, you should only fight one battle at a time. I'm like, then fight one battle and get out. Like, do that. Like, you said it. He said it like three or four times. He's like, you should only fight one battle at a time. I'm like, you're not doing that. You're fighting two. Two, yeah. <laughs> and we should definitely mention, yeah. So one, also, they're totally cocky. Like, every single chapter, the two of them are like, you saw what we did to the gargoyles. We're unstoppable. And I'm like, yeah, 
That was oh. one time. Like Also, we've talked about how, because I asked this like, in one of the previous episodes about how when they use their powers, they get exhausted. So the fact is, okay, they might be able to do one incredible thing and then they're going to be passed out on the floor and boom, now you're dead. Like, <laughs> obviously, you don't know what you're doing. Like, I just, I cannot believe yeah, that I think that was what like honestly angered me most about this section of reading was just how like they just were so naive. I feel like like they were like, "Oh, we're so powerful. Like we can defeat anything." And I'm like, "You don't even know what you're doing." Yeah, for sure. Also, we should mention kind of like you just did, but like Josh loves his new powers. He loves them. Sophie's like, I'd rather be normal. Like, I'd rather we didn't have to do this, which is stupid, as we've discussed. This would have happened to you either way. But Josh is like, I love it. I love having power. And then when he (laughs) figures out that Mars gave him tactical knowledge, Josh is like, I am a general. I am a strategist. I am so awesome. Yeah, which I also, that's another thing that I did agree with between Josh and Sophie. I agree with Josh because I think Sophie, because how she's like, oh, I rather go back to normal and she makes a comment of like i wish i didn't go into work and josh is like it doesn't matter because like this would have happened either way like he finally i feel like which it's like biased because josh obviously is enjoying the powers and stuff but he is kind of like he's right in saying that you know there's there's no changing what happened like and he oh no that's what it is he makes the comment of he says if this wouldn't have happened, the Dark Elders would have probably already been released and the world would be over as we know it. So there is no going back. Like, and I thought that was right. Whereas, yes. like, Sophie was like, oh, I want to go back. Like, I don't know. This naive children. They're both naive. Also, Josh literally is like, D is a murderer. And D told me himself, like, in that conversation they have in the castle. But he's still, like, incredibly, he's still very sympathetic towards D. And I'm like, it's because as we're learning, like he's kind of similar to D. This he has this desire for knowledge and power, power primarily with Josh. I think like he wants to be powerful. I mean, he even talks about. I think like he's always kind of been like a nobody. There's nothing special about him. Like oh my literally god, literally Sophie's like, like he needed me because he needed friends. She says yeah. it like a couple times. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, for him, this is the best thing in his life probably to happen to him. And he also talks about, like, wanting to be an individual. He's like, it's always been me and Sophie, and I'd like to be... Which is also sketchy because, like, if he wants to be an individual, like, you're still, like, does that mean you, like, get rid of Sophie? Like, I don't know. He's definitely showing, like... That's a really important line. Again, not spoiling anything, but the whole I want to be an individual, the important for Josh and Sophie. Well, also because I feel like Sophie wouldn't say something like that, like... I understand if you want to be an individual, but, like, your desire to be an individual, would that make you turn on your twin so that you could finally really be an individual? Also, I'm just, like, you are an individual. Like, I get what you're saying. It's Also, it's different through them because I feel like for twins, I feel like twins who struggle with not being individuals is more when you're identical because you literally are the same person. Whereas they're literally a boy and a girl, two I'm different like, you people. guys are also best friends. Like, yeah. it's not... Like I understand, I obviously, they have to share birthdays and stuff, but, like, in actuality, you're your own person, and the fact, just the fact that they're different genders, like, you could have a separate life from your twin if you really wanted to, but you just happen to be kind of a loner, so you rely on your twin for everything. So yeah. that's just, like, I just feel like this is definitely being set up that there is. I don't know if he'll ultimately be evil in the end, but I do think that he is going to have moments or a moment of maybe turning, like, to the dark side, because mm-hmm. he is kind of being set up as the, like, 
lesser twin, the inferior twin and feeling that way and kind of living maybe in Sophie's shadow. And, you know, this is his chance to finally not do that. Yeah, and like, can- I do understand being really close with your sibling, like, because they did move a lot. They talk about, like, because their parents' jobs, they moved a lot. And I moved a lot, too, growing up, as you know. And I'm really close with my siblings because of that, because when you move a lot, it's harder to, like, stay in touch with people. But I do think it's a little ridiculous that he's, like, because I always got, we always got the same party invitation together. I feel like I'm part of a matching set. And I'm like. But you are. <laughs> you are. And also you're, you, it hasn't been a problem until Sophie got powers before you. Like, because you're really close. And you, the whole first two books, all you're like is I want to be the same as Sophie again. And it's then you get your powers and you're even again. He's like, just kidding. Now I have to be by myself. I am just curious, like, because when Michael Scott wrote it, like, there's, de- like, it's a little bit of, like, toxic masculinity. Like. For sure. Oh, 100%. 100%. Like, he definitely has a... I mean, even his whole thing of, like, I must protect Sophie when she was, like, awakened. And she's, like... Oh, yeah. And I was, like, she's doing just fine. Like, she's doing just fine. So it'll just be interesting to see where this goes. I mean, I'm I'm hoping and I'm assuming that there'll be, like, obviously a happy ending. Like, but I do think that there'll be... Oh, Charles just raised his eyebrows, so, like, maybe there won't be a happy ending. Maybe one of the twins is going to die. Well, fingers crossed it's Josh. Who knows? I can't tell you, mostly because I don't exactly remember. (laughs) But anyway, I'm glad we we rebriefed on them because they're, you know, our main characters. But they definitely took more of a backseat in this reading, and I think that next reading they'll probably be back more in the spotlight. I would agree. It's going to get crazier. It's going to get crazier. But I think this is a good place to end... Yeah, I can't wait to keep reading, you know, aside from the bugs, but we're going to be finishing The Sorceress for next week, so go ahead and read to the end of the book if you're reading along with us. And yeah, I can't wait because we got Gilgamesh, who is crazy, and we haven't heard anything from Scatty, like we mentioned, since she got dragged into the river, so here's hoping she's okay and that she comes back. If you have any predictions, theories, questions... If you want to talk, talk about D's Masters or world building, you can always stay in touch with us on the Nerd Party Note website. You just head over to nerdparty.com slash contact, select throwback paperback, send us an email there, get in touch with us. You can also get in touch with the network generally on Twitter at Join Nerd Party or on Instagram at The Nerd Party or on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Nerd Party. You can find me if you want to talk about that Masters on Instagram and Twitter, both. Um, I'm at C.E. Sheeland on both of those. And I'm at AsiaBoney on Twitter and at Asia.Boney on Instagram. If you enjoyed this, make sure that you rate and review the podcast and share it with your friends and family. And of course, check out the other podcasts on the Nerd Party Network and make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss us next week. Yes, hit that subscribe. Have a good one. We'll see you next week. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party.